Napoleon once said, between a battle lost and a battle won, the distance is immense, and there stand empires. Hello, this is Chip Wagar. I'm your host on this continuing series, Killing Time, about military battles and campaigns that bent the arc of history. The battle we're going to discuss today is one of those battles, and it's the first ever naval battle that we've covered in this military history podcast. And although it's military history, the naval forces of any country or empire um, are a component part of the military of that empire. So there's no reason why we should not discuss a naval battle in this podcast series, and we're going to. The Battle of Trafalgar was fought between the naval forces of three empires vying for world supremacy at the beginning of the 19th century. France and Spain on one side, and Britain on the other. The date was October 21st, 1805. Some 15,000 men were killed or wounded in this battle, including some 3,000 who drowned later after the battle in a storm that followed. This battle involves Horatio Nelson, who, in my opinion, ranks with Napoleon, or von Moltke, um, and perhaps a few others, as one of the greatest commanders of all times, but um, particularly as a creative military thinker. Uh, and we'll talk about that later on. Trafalgar took place in the early part of the Napoleonic Wars that rocked Europe for the first 15 years of the 19th century. This particular naval battle is not the only one that was fought during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, but it is the biggest and most decisive of them all, and secured Britain from invasion for the duration of the Napoleonic Wars, as well as separating France and Spain from their colonial empires in North America, which both largely lost thereafter. So let's talk a little bit about what naval warfare was all about in the early 19th century. Of course, at that time, we're still in the age of sailing ships, really the end of the age of sailing ships, uh, when they achieved their highest level of technological uh, proficiency. Steam engines and metal-clad vessels uh, would not be used on a large scale uh, until the American Civil War, about a half a century later. Military ships then, uh, and I'm going to call military ships naval ships, uh, you can use the terms interchangeably, uh, came in a variety of shapes, sizes, speeds, crew size and armament then, just as they do today. 
And that's because different ships have different purposes. And those include things like reconnaissance, raiding, blockading, transporting soldiers and marines, bombarding, and of course naval combat with enemy naval vessels. The ships involved in the Battle of Trafalgar were mainly uh, what were known then as ships of the line, basically the heavy battleships of that era that formed the core and backbone of the most powerful fleets of that era. Fleets were comparable to entire field armies on land. And just as in land combat, every maritime power worthy of the name had a fleet of these ships of the line, which they moved often in combination with faster moving frigates, brigs, sloops, and other supporting vessels. And these fleets were an extension of the power of the empire that controlled them, giving that country the ability to deliver at long distance an overwhelming display of firepower and strength that could destroy anything, practically, but another comparable fleet. At Trafalgar, the British would throw 27 ships of the line into the battle and six lesser vessels, 33 ships all told. The flagship of their fleet uh, and of Admiral Lord Nelson was the incomparable HMS Victory. And this will give you an idea of the um, ships of the line of that day. Um, They, the Victory uh, had a complement of 850 men. That's a lot on a ship, a sailing ship like that. It displaced 3,500 tons and bristled with 104 guns arrayed on uh, horizontal gun decks and was the largest battleship of the British fleet at Trafalgar. She's still intact today and afloat in London as a museum if you ever go there uh, and want to see her. Uh, She's the oldest warship still afloat. But their largest battleship of all belonged to the Spanish fleet, the Santissima Trinidad. That ship sported 130 guns, displaced 4,950 tons, and had a complement of 1,050. And it was just one of the massive warships under the command of Admiral Frederico Gravina, the Spanish fleet commander together with some 15 other ships of the line in this battle. The Spanish fleet also featured two more first-rate ships of the line with 112 guns, either one of them larger than Victory. Santissima Trinidad, though, was the largest and most powerful warship in the world uh, at the time of Trafalgar. The French commander, Admiral Villeneuve, Uh, who had served with the French fleet at Yorktown under Admiral de Grasse 16 years earlier, uh, was aboard the Boucentaur, uh, which was really a brand new uh, ship, only um, commissioned a a couple of years before Trafalgar, uh, and it had 80 guns. Um, Villeneuve commanded a French fleet of 18 ships of the line with eight other vessels. So, Here you have it. It was the British fleet of uh, 27 ships of the line against 33 Franco-Spanish ships of the line 
uh, in their combined fleet. And each fleet uh, also had smaller vessels, such as frigates and sloops, that were um, not really engaged during the battle, but which took part in the leading up to the battle, scouting and doing other functions. Now, just to give you an idea of the relative power of these massive, ponderous beasts of the ocean, let me just tell you that the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo had 157 artillery pieces total, of which 60 were 9-pounders, and the remaining uh, pieces were 6-pounders. Neither Victory nor Santissima Trinidad, nor any of these ships of the line for that matter, had any artillery that was that small. Now, remember what we're talking about here when it comes to um, six and nine pounders or whatever the number may be, is the weight of the ball, the cannonball, the round shot, if you will, that is capable of being projected from these um, weapons. Um, and so, as we're going to see, uh, these six and nine pounders that Wellington had at his disposal are going to compare very meagerly with what's available on these ships. The Santissima Trinidad, for example, alone had almost as many cannon as Wellington did in his entire field army. Now imagine the entire Spanish fleet of 15 ships of the line and the immense firepower it could bring to bear, and you get the idea. Naval ships of this era, as they would be for another century and a half, were basically floating artillery batteries, with their guns projecting from gun ports in parallel horizontal gun decks. The largest ships of the line, such as Victory or Santissima Trinidad, had usually four parallel gun decks, uh, and then more cannon on the raised decks of the bow and the stern, known as the forecastle in the case of the bow, and the poop deck uh, in the case of the stern, so named, by the way, for the French word for the stern. Three gun decks now were below the main or quarter deck, uh, which afforded some protection from grape shot and musket fire, which could sweep the exposed top deck, uh, but were low-ceilinged, confined areas for the gunners working the cannon with tremendous amounts of noise, smoke, and danger from flying chunks of wood uh, and grape shot and, of course, metal ball, as we'll discuss in a minute. Now, these gun decks usually uh, mounted ever-increasing weight and caliber cannon as you went down to the lowest deck. The mightiest warships had 32 or even 36-pound cannon on the lowest deck. Uh, now remember, Wellington's biggest cannon were 9-pounders. HMS Victory had 15 32-pounders on each side of the ship on its lowest gun deck, for example. Its middle gun deck sported 14 28-pounders, the upper deck 15 12-pounders, and the main or quarter deck had 12 more 12-pounders. And the forecastle had two 12-pounders and two carronades, a, a little bit different kind of uh, cannon, a huge cannon with very low muzzle velocity, however, but it could throw a 68-pound ball or a massive blast of canister or grape shot. 
and we'll hear that put to effect uh, aboard Victory during the battle a little later on. Now, a broadside, you probably heard that term, meant that much or all of the cannon on one side of the ship was able to fire on a target that was floating alongside it or floating by it. Maximum firepower was brought to bear by steering a warship so that it could be turned sideways to face the enemy. In fact, Admiral Nelson uh, had a little um, instruction for his captains that a British captain could not do much uh, wrong if he simply pulled alongside and began emptying broadsides into the enemy. It was just that simple. Now, the bow and the stern of these ships, however, were extremely vulnerable because they had only a few lighter cannon mounted on the bow and maybe uh, a half a dozen or so projecting from portholes in the stern transom of the ship. Conditions were nothing short of atrocious uh, for the sailor gunners during a battle. Uh, those in the gun deck serving cannon over and over again never knew when a terrific broadside might rip into their compartments. Young boys, 14 or 15 years old, scampered between the decks, bringing more black powder from the protected magazine storerooms deep within the ship to the gunners. Now these cannon themselves, when fired, recoiled violently backward and were only kept from blasting right across the deck uh, or into one of the inner walls or bulkheads by chains that held them at the extreme of an, uh, end of their recoil. After each blast, um, the cannon had to be mopped or cleansed or swabbed, at, uh, as it was then uh, called, with a swab, um, and relo reloaded with a new charge of gunpowder and shot, and then pushed back into position to fire another round. Now these guns typically weighed two, uh, you know, a ton, so they're very heavy and hard to maneuver, and it's miserable work below decks or on the decks with the noise of cannon blasts uh, at nothing short of deafening level. The speed with which cannon could be fired, reloaded, and fired again was a key factor in the success of a naval engagement. The Royal Navy excelled at rapid and accurate gunnery and could typically get off two or three rounds over five minutes when working at the frantic pace uh, that one saw during a battle. The less experienced French and Spanish crews tended to be able to manage only one round every eight minutes for their heavier guns, and maybe uh, as fast as every four or five minutes one round for their lighter guns. Gunnery tactics also differed between the two navies. The French preferred the tactic of remaining at some distance and firing rounds to dismast the enemy, in other words, knock their sailing masts down. And you know, when they were successful at that, uh, the dismasted ship basically became dead in the water, allowing the French to close in for the kill, pouring broadsides into the helpless enemy at the bow or the stern until it surrendered or was destroyed. The preferred British tactic uh, was to sail as quickly as possible into close quarters and then let their superior rapid-fire gunnery uh, 
have their way with them. Uh, crossing behind or ahead of an enemy ship or crossing the T, if you can imagine a ship sailing sort of from north to south or south to north and then crossing a, a, you know, across its bow or coming across its stern uh, was the quintessential tactical maneuver since it brought a broadside or half the guns of one ship to bear uh, against only a few lighter guns from the enemy on the bow or stern. Uh, so, for example, you know, a salvo of round shot from a broadside could, you know, rake the um, bow and forecastle area and perhaps even the quarterdeck, maybe hit the mass um, of, a, of a ship uh, as you crossed in front of it, or you could pass behind it and blast through the stern windows and maybe rocket balls into the um, uh, gun decks uh, where their cannon are. Now, these ships of this period moved very slowly, by modern standards. At normal cruising speed with a fair wind, Victory, which was a 47-year-old vessel at the time of the battle, could do about 8 or 9 knots per hour, which is about the same as other naval vessels of her class at that time. So that's better than walking speed, uh, but n not quite running speed, um, uh, that's about 10 miles per hour uh, the ship could sail under normal you know, running conditions. And normal running speed for humans is about 15 miles per hour. Now what this meant was that it, a naval battle of ships of the line like these unfolded and unraveled in majestic and terrifying slowness. Uh, with these ships quietly bearing down on each other before maneuvering, and engaging with a blast of ear-splitting cannon shot. The approach of an enemy warship from the time of its first sighting could take hours or even days if it were uh, in pursuit of you, uh, a fleeing enemy, uh, with the crews aboard each ship uh, readying for combat with ever-rising anxiety. Now, one thing I'll mention... Um, Obviously, these cannonballs or round shot um, could do tremendous damage and kill. But um, something that's not re recognized by a lot of people is the danger presented by wood splinters that were blasted from the wooden hull, deck, mass, or any other structure by um, round shot, uh, smashing into them. Um, these warships were mostly made of hardwood like oak, so these chunks and splinters flying through the air were like shrapnel, and they did maim, wound, and even kill sailors, especially those trapped in these low-ceilinged uh, gun decks. So let's talk a little bit now about the context, as we always do, in which the Battle of Trafalgar was fought. As I've already mentioned, the battle took place during the Napoleonic Wars. 
Uh, although the entire period lasted from 1799 to 1815, the Napoleonic Wars were divided into distinct separate periods of actual conflict among the continental powers with their vast land armies. You know, the War of the First Coalition, which was fought against revolutionary France, actually before 1799, all the way to the War of the Seventh Coalition, which ended uh, with the Battle of Waterloo. Now, Britain remained at war almost continuously with France for this entire period, except for a brief interval in 1802 and 1803. But her continental allies did not. So, for those of you who have already listened to our podcast about the Battle of Austerlitz, uh, you'll already know something about the War of the Third Coalition, during which the Battle of Trafalgar took place. It began when Britain declared war on France in 1803, but was largely an Anglo-French war until 1805, when Russia, Austria, and several other continental powers joined Britain. And it ended, effectively, in December 1805 with the crushing defeat of Austria and Russia at the Battle of Austerlitz. For more about that, do listen to our podcast on Austerlitz. In any event, the beginnings of this war were the result of a series of disputes between France and Britain that eventually ruptured the Treaty of Amiens of 1802 that had ended the War of the Second Coalition. Napoleon assembled an army of some 200,000 on the shores of the English Channel at Boulogne during this time, during this time from 1803 to 1805, But that army was prevented from crossing the Channel by the presence of the Royal Navy, the Channel Fleet. Many people have the mistaken idea that after the defeat of the Franco-Spanish fleet at Trafalgar, Napoleon gave up his invasion plans and turned to the east to fight the Austro-Russian allies. But that's completely incorrect. With Austria's declaration of war on August 7, 1805, Napoleon's Grande Armée, which by then had swelled to nearly 350,000, broke camp and began its march eastward toward the Rhine, which it reached about a month later in early September. Now, you already know that Trafalgar was not fought until October, another month after that. By then, Napoleon and his army had crossed the Rhine and was deep into Bavaria, in Germany, and had just defeated a part of the Austrian army at Ulm. Napoleon had devised a plan, however, before that, to gain temporary naval superiority in the English Channel in 1805, before Russia and Austria had even declared war. The sortie of the Franco-Spanish fleet from its base at Cadiz in Spain in October 1805, which led to the Battle of Trafalgar, was actually for the purpose of transporting some 12,000 French troops into the Mediterranean to assist Napoleon in the war there against Austria and to disrupt British maritime commerce in the Mediterranean, raiding, shipping, and generally causing chaos. The idea was not to rendezvous with Napoleon at Boulogne, it was too late for that, but to reinforce the French in Italy, which, as it turns out, was was basically a sideshow in the showdown that was occurring in Central Europe. The catastrophe that befell 
the fleet of France and Spain was therefore not only avoidable, but arose out of a relatively inconsequential plan. In my opinion, and in the opinion of some others who have studied and written about the conflict, the cause and origin of the Franco-Spanish naval disaster had several sources, but none greater than the personality and conduct of its commander, Vice Admiral Pierre-Charles-Jean-Baptiste Silvestre de Villeneuve. And so it's worthwhile to introduce you to this interesting and fateful character at this point in our podcast, along with the other two commanders. And I think it's appropriate um, also because, you know, Nelson tends to get all the press, and rightly so because of his dramatic victory. Um, But if you study this from a military-naval point of view, Villeneuve uh, is as much to blame as Nelson is um, to uh, deserve credit uh, for the way the battle came out. So let's talk a little bit about this guy. As you might guess from his rather long name, Villeneuve was born into aristocracy in 1763, but at an early age declared himself in sympathy with the revolution that broke out in 1789 and raged on and off for nearly a decade until in 1799 Napoleon became the dictator of France in a coup. Villeneuve entered the naval service of the Royal French Navy in 1778 at the age of 15 and, as I've already mentioned, was an ensign at Yorktown, uh, a battle familiar to Americans as the last great battle of the American Revolutionary War that took place in 1783. What you might not know is that Yorktown was made into a decisive defeat for Britain uh, after a fairly significant naval battle between France and Britain that enabled the French fleet to blockade Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown until he surrendered to George Washington and his Continental Army, laying siege to him on land. This was because of the Battle of the Chesapeake, in which the French, under Admiral François-Joseph-Paul-Comte de Grasse, defeated a British fleet under the command of Rear Admiral Sir Thomas Graves. Villeneuve was just 20 years old at that time. The British didn't win every naval battle. Unfortunately for us uh, as Americans, they didn't win that one. Villeneuve was spared the purges that occurred during the revolutionary period that drummed out older, more experienced naval commanders from the French Navy due to his pro-revolutionary political sympathies. Uh, He rose to a captain's rank by 1793, when he first met Napoleon, and by 1796 he became an admiral. Now that's before Napoleon even took power. He served thereafter without particular distinction, but certainly uh, learned his craft reasonably well, uh, and was uh, a good captain and... um, senior commander, but very similar to Marshal Benedek of Austria, uh, who we discussed in the Battle of Königgratz uh, a few episodes ago. Villeneuve um, had something in common with him, uh, because Villeneuve was a capable commander of a ship, or even you know, part of a fleet, but he didn't have the confidence or ability to command an entire fleet, 
an entire battle fleet at the operational level, just as Benedict proved very good as a, a general of a division or a corps, but incompetent when it com came to commanding an entire field army at Königgratz. And you see this in military history uh, many times, um, the so-called Peter Principle at work uh, in the military. Now, Villeneuve's undoing uh, at the Battle of Trafalgar actually began many years earlier with another naval catastrophe that France suffered at the Battle of the Nile, also at the hands of Horatio Nelson. Villeneuve uh, was an admiral at that time, and a rear admiral, meaning in the derivation of the term, he was in command of uh, a ship at the rear of the French battle fleet. Uh, that was drawn up in Abukir Bay. Uh, the French fleet was, for the most part, blown off its anchors, captured or destroyed by Nelson's fleet in 1798. And the smashing result of that battle um, that cut Napoleon and his entire field army off in Egypt and marooned them there would haunt Villeneuve ever after. And Villeneuve, you know, it's fair to say, would remain psychologically in awe of Horatio Nelson ever after that battle. And part of it was because of Nelson's uh, very unorthodox and unconventional means by which he engaged and, and annihilated the French fleet. Um, but we don't have time in this podcast to get into that too much. It just... Uh, introduced the element of uncertainty in Villeneuve's mind any time he confronted Nelson. He just didn't know exactly what he would do. Now, Villeneuve's ship actually escaped that battle, the Battle of the Nile, uh, essentially unscathed uh, and without seriously engaging the enemy, uh, for which he was severely criticized by his French naval colleagues at the time. Uh, his lack of aggressiveness, or crin, as the French would say, uh, probably translates best as guts, to put it bluntly, uh, would tend to mark him as a commander ever after. Cautious, full of excuses and rationalizations for inaction, uh, an admiral whose personality was in such contrast to his opposite, Horatio Nelson, as we'll see, and to Napoleon himself, his supreme commander. Uh, nonetheless, Napoleon wrongly concluded Villeneuve was a lucky admiral due to his escape uh, from the Battle of the Nile, drawing the wrong conclusion from it, and dismissed criticism of the admiral in 1799 when he became First Consul of France. Villeneuve was promoted to more important commands in the intervening years before 1805. Nonetheless, before Trafalgar, even Napoleon caught on to Villeneuve's consistent inaction, ineffectiveness, and excuses, and from his camp on the Rhine, marching into Germany, he ordered his dismissal and replacement, but unfortunately, his orders came too late. Villeneuve himself was only too aware of his own shortcomings. His great friend, patron, and colleague, Denis de Cray, the French Minister of the Navy for nearly all of Napoleon's reign, received a letter of resignation from him in January 1805. This is long before the battle. 
overwhelmed by the command he had been given. In that letter, Villeneuve said, quote, I have always sought a practical and useful career, as opposed to one filled with glory, unquote. Obviously, his resignation was not accepted, unfortunately for France and Spain, uh, and unfortunately for all those French and Spanish sailors who would lose their lives in the Battle of Trafalgar. And by the way, um, the treaty between France and Spain, the Treaty of Alliance, that brought Spain into the war with Britain in 1805, um, stipulated that the combined fleet would be commanded by the French and not the Spanish. And that's possibly unfortunate uh, because the Spanish Admiral Federico Carlos Gravina y Napoli was of a different sort. He was also born into an aristocratic family, and he had joined the Spanish Navy at the age of 12 and risen steadily in rank and command. But unlike Villeneuve, he distinguished himself at virtually every turn. Much of his experience in his early life, and he was dead by age 49, was against pirates and corsairs in the Mediterranean and Caribbean. But he also led maritime expeditions against land targets and fortresses against the British. During a period of peace and alliance with Britain before uh, the war, he actually went to England and studied British naval architecture and tactics. He was a seaman through and through, accepting the office of ambassador to Paris in 1804 from the King of Spain, only on the condition that should war break out, he would return immediately to a naval command. Gravina had guts and experience. As Napoleon wrote of him shortly before Trafalgar, quote, Gravina is all genius and decision in combat. If Villeneuve had had those qualities, the Battle of Finisterre would have been a complete victory. Regretting his insistence that a French admiral be in charge, no doubt. Now, Napoleon in that um, letter was lamenting the naval battle of Cape Finisterre, which had been fought on July 22, 1805, a few months before Trafalgar. Uh, that was back when the Napoleon was still uh, preparing to invade uh, Britain, and it was the one great chance that he ever had uh, before the Austrian declaration of war in August. In this indecisive battle that was fought off the north coast of uh, Spain, Villeneuve and Gravina had done not too badly, uh, losing two ships to Admiral Calder's uh, fleet, but otherwise fighting well. Calder elected to break off the action after nightfall, and the next day the fleets had drifted some 20 miles apart. Calder was later court-martialed by the Admiralty and disgraced for his failure to renew the action. But the greater impact of the battle was that Villeneuve turned away from his planned rendezvous with the rest of the French fleet of 26 warships at Brest under Vice Admiral Gautome. This would have given the French at least temporarily an immense superiority of 59 ships of the line. As Napoleon said later, quote, If Admiral Villeneuve, instead of entering Ferrol, and that's a Spanish port to the south, had contented himself with rallying at the Spanish squadron and had sailed for Brest to join Admiral Gautome, my army would have landed 
it would have been all over with England. As it was, Villeneuve claimed victory and then headed south to the Spanish port of Farrell and then on to Cadiz, where the combined fleet was immediately blockaded uh, by the British, uh, who assembled hastily a very um, much smaller force uh, than the um, Franco-Spanish fleet uh, under uh, Admiral Collingwood that hovered uh, offshore uh, and seemed a lot bigger than it was to Villeneuve uh, at the time. Uh, in any event, Villeneuve's decision to turn south and not go to Brest and join the rest of the French fleet there dumbfounded Admiral Gravinus, uh, and he seethed about it ever after, uh, until his until his death, actually, um, shortly after Trafalgar. So let's talk about Horatio Nelson now, the third and greatest of the three admirals, um, acknowledged as such by both Villeneuve and um, Gravina after the battle. Nelson had gone to sea at 13, the sixth of 11 children of a country parson. He was not an aristocrat, although he was distantly related to the noble Walpole family through his mother. With this tenuous connection, Nelson boarded his first ship as an ordinary seaman and coxswain in 1771. The third-rate ship of the line, however, was commanded by his maternal uncle, and he was shortly thereafter promoted to midshipman. His early service was in the Atlantic and Caribbean, but then in the East Indies as well. In the late 1770s, he also served in the American War of Independence in the British Navy, but mainly against the Spanish in Central America, where he developed malaria, which would recur from time to time for the rest of his life. His first command came in 1781 of a frigate. Now, this podcast is too short to chronicle Nelson's steady climb up through the ranks of the British Navy between 1781 and 1799, uh, but his service was invariably uh, distinguished and bold at every step of the way uh, and attracted the notice and approval of his superiors and several giants of the Royal Navy of the day, most notably Admiral Lord Hood under whose command Nelson flourished. His command progressed from frigate to ship of the line to squadrons. Rear admiral status was finally achieved in 1797 after his heroic action in the Battle of St. Vincent, another major uh, naval battle between the um, Franco-Spanish and the British. Uh, and... Uh, in that battle, his vessel single-handedly captured two huge Spanish warships. Nelson's personality emerged during this period as a hyper-aggressive young commander, willing to take huge risks to satisfy his craving for advancement and recognition. Perhaps this was due to his relatively common origins, or maybe having you know, come from a very large family and a desire for attention, but his flamboyant and almost reckless thirst for battle and glory, especially battle, finds few peers in military history on land or sea. 
Nelson's personal life was also reckless. His affair with the wife of the British ambassador in Naples, Lady Hamilton, is the stuff of romance novels, but scandalized the British court, especially the somewhat puritanical King George III, who only reluctantly granted honors and titles to a rock star celebrity admiral uh, as his victories piled up, which only made Nelson crave even more for recognition uh, and to rise above the slights, of the, as he perceived them, of the British court. And there are many different um, views of uh, Nelson, but perhaps one of the most interesting is the Duke of Wellington, uh, who's England's other mega-hero of that era, uh, who met him at a ball once. Uh, Nepo- uh, Nelson uh, appeared resplendent in his naval uniform with decorations you know, covering his chest and a jeweled, beautiful diamond jewel pin in his hat. And you can see this uh, pin uh, uh, in one of his most famous um, portraits. It was given to him by the Sultan of Turkey after the Battle of the Nile in gratitude for his uh, defeating the uh, French. Uh, but Nelson didn't recognize Wellington in his plain red military uniform uh, because he was mixed in with other British officers. Uh, and, you know, seemingly snubbed him. Uh, Nelson at that time was already a national hero, uh, but his in high society's affair with Lady Hamilton was already telling. The Duke of Wellington uh, thought of him as a vain, quote, peacock of a man, uh, and was um, rather put off by his showy uh, medals and so on and so forth, um, at that uh, meeting between the two, uh, which probably Nelson never even uh, remembered. Interestingly, Nelson unknowingly also encountered the young Napoleon Bonaparte at the Siege of Toulon in 1793. The Mediterranean port and major naval base for France was occupied by Admiral Hood at the invitation of French royalists that were concentrated there. Eventually, the British were forced out by a young artillery commander uh, who sighted French batteries on hills around the city and placed them under bombardment, forcing the British to withdraw. And that artillery commander, of course, was none other than Napoleon himself, long before he became famous or even a general. It was the first Battle of the Nile, however, where these two towering figures really crossed swords. Napoleon, still a rising star in the French Revolutionary period, had set forth from France with a naval escort and a field army under his command to attempt the conquest of Egypt from the sprawling Ottoman Empire. On land, he was successful, defeating the Turkish and Egyptian forces, but the French fleet, at anchor in Aboukir Bay, just east of Alexandria, the French base, was absolutely annihilated by Nelson on August 1, 1798. That battle would be followed by another crusher, this time in the, in the Baltic at the Battle of Copenhagen against the Danish and Swedish fleets who had allied with Napoleon to break the British blockade. When the French uh, threat arose at Boulogne in, 17, excuse me, in 1804 and 05, it was Nelson to whom the Admiralty turned to command. So now let's talk about the actual campaign itself. Thank you.
While Napoleon Bonaparte was no sailor and had little expertise in the art and science of naval warfare on the tactical or operational level, he was a master strategist and conceived of a clever plan to achieve sufficient naval supremacy in the English Channel, as we've seen. And he was certain that once he got across, England's fate would be sealed. And he was probably right. On land, Napoleon had no peer in 1805, as the Austrians, Russians, and eventually the Prussians would soon learn. Britain's best and brightest military leaders tended to be in the Navy, not the Army, although there were notable exceptions to this rule in both services, the Duke of Wellington obviously being one of them. Nonetheless, Napoleon's plan began with the reality that the French fleet was divided. One half of it, roughly, was located at Brest, a port on the Atlantic, at the westernmost end of the English Channel, formed by the southern coast of England and the northern uh, coast of Normandy and Brittany. The other half of the French fleet was in the Mediterranean at Toulon, and there were other minor detachments elsewhere, but this was the starting point for any discussion of strategy. Naturally, the British took a keen interest in the location of all hostile fleets, including that of Spain. Its fleet was located at the port of Cadiz, which is just west and north of Gibraltar, the British naval base at the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean. One British fleet, the so-called Channel Fleet, blockaded the French fleet at Brest under the command of Admiral Sir William Cornwallis. That Cornwallis, by the way, was the brother of the famous general defeated at Yorktown and was a good friend of Nelson at the time. Nelson was given command of the Mediterranean fleet, blocking Toulon, where Villeneuve was commanding. The Napoleonic plan was for Villeneuve's fleet to sortie from Toulon, passing the British blockade, passing through the Straits of Gibraltar into the Atlantic, where it would rendezvous and join with the Spanish fleet under Gravina. Together they would sail for the Caribbean, hopefully drawing the British Mediterranean fleet after them. The plan was then for Villeneuve to suddenly and secretly return to Europe, while the British searched for his fleet in the West Indies, and join with the rest of the French fleet at Brest under the command of Admiral Gautome. At that point, the French should have had overwhelming superiority in the Channel, at least in numbers, and at least temporarily, sufficient to allow Napoleon and his army to cross. It was a clever, deceptive plan, and it worked very well, until the very end, when, as we've seen after the engagement at Cape Finisterre, Villeneuve decided not to sail for Brest, but instead for Spain, ruining the plan to the dismay, disgust, and anger of Napoleon. All the clever maneuvering, time, and expense had been wasted by Villeneuve's loss of nerve at the moment of truth. The British Admiralty, having fallen for the trick and exposed momentarily to the prospect of an overwhelming French presence in the Channel, clamped a tight blockade down on the combined fleet at Cadiz after Nelson's fleet returned from its wild goose chase to the Caribbean. Under no circumstances could any British Admiral permit that fleet to escape and join the one at Brest. Now, after two years at sea continuously, Nelson spent a month in England in June and July, but was then instructed by the Admiralty to take command again of the fleet blockading Cadiz. Any attempt by the Franco-Spanish fleet to leave was to be resisted to the utmost, 
as it would be assumed to be another attempt to link up with the fleet at Brest. To strengthen the hastily assembled blockading force off Cadiz under the command of Rear Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, Cornwallis took a chance and detached a strong squadron of 21 ships of the line from his own command off Brest, leaving him with only 11. Now here again, you know, the British are hovering off the coast. They're screened by one or more frigates between them and the French in port. So, you know, the French don't know what's going on uh, at this at this point uh, and would only know if they sortied from the port, which they didn't. So they, they think there's still a, uh, a huge force of 32 ships um, blockading them off Brest when it's only 11. Anyway, this force of 21 under Admiral Calder arrived off Cadiz to join with Collingwood's force on September 15th. By then, however, Napoleon's massive army had quit Boulogne, so even if the Channel Fleet had been engaged and defeated by Admiral Gautome's fleet, the operational advantage gained would not have resulted in an immediate invasion, as would have been the case just a month earlier. By September 27th, Nelson arrived off Cadiz aboard his flagship Victory and assumed command over the fleet that I described at the beginning of the podcast. Napoleon, in the meantime, arranged for the dismissal of Villeneuve and his replacement by Admiral Francois Rosily and wrote to Minister de Cray to arrange it immediately. The Spanish Admiral and most French officers concurred with Villeneuve's assessment by late September. Had the fleet attempted to break out weeks earlier, when the British had only a much weaker squadron, the prospect of success would have been much greater. But Villeneuve's dithering and delay foreclosed this possibility to the point where escape from Cadiz Harbor seemed a dubious proposition indeed. So while Villeneuve's judgment to remain at Cadiz cannot be fairly criticized in October, his failure to energetically carry out his command and break out for Naples in early September after his earlier blunder in failing to press for Brest in July can be. But now Villeneuve would take the most fateful decision of all. On October 18th, 1805, Villeneuve received a letter from the naval minister Decret, informing him that Rosilly had arrived in Madrid with orders to take over the Cadiz command and advising, quote, break out, beat the enemy, and all will be right, unquote. So Villeneuve faced professional humiliation at this point. Now, over the objections of his senior officers and the Spanish Admiral Gravina, Villeneuve decided to break out before Rosalie could reach Cadiz and beat the enemy, as de Cray had urged him. Villeneuve knew that Nelson was out there waiting for him, but he didn't know the exact size of the force he would be facing unaware, as we see, of Cornwallis's reinforcements. But still, his force was larger. As was the case at Brest, Nelson's main fleet was some 50 miles offshore Cadiz, out of sight for this very purpose. 
Nelson had stationed very fast frigates within sight of Cadiz Harbor to constantly observe the port and to alert the fleet, you know, with signals, with flag signals, should Villeneuve emerge. In the meantime, Nelson met with his captains and admirals and senior officers, including Collingwood, to develop plans as to how the fleet would tackle any attempt by the combined fleet to break out. Now, this plan, devised by Nelson, exemplifies not only his creativity, but also his courage and daring to attempt an essentially unique method of attack in a battle that meant so much. To understand the brilliance of Nelson's mind and his tactics, we need to discuss for just a moment the basic tactical methods of fleet warfare in the late 18th and early 19th century. As with any war planning, from the time of Sun Tzu, deception and surprise, when successfully executed, are often the greatest factor in victory. Conversely, predictability is a vice of the ordinary general or commander that can lead to disaster. This is what we saw at Austerlitz when Napoleon correctly predicted the movement of the enemy and pounced on a weakened center in their line, leading to complete annihilation. And this is what we'll also see here at Trafalgar. Nelson correctly guessed that Villeneuve and Gravina would resort to the traditional tactical formation for fleet warfare that had developed in the 19th century. And this was essentially for the ships of the line to form a long line, bow to stern, uh, known as uh, line ahead, often stretching for miles uh, as they, you know, went along. And there were a number of advantages to this approach. Signaling with flags from one ship to another was one of them. This formation allowed for enhanced fleet maneuvering, with everyone knowing where the fleet was going and what it was doing at any given time. Ships approaching the fleet when it was arrayed in this position, faced a massive array of broadsides of guns as they came within range, particularly if they approached in the line ahead formation themselves or head-on, with few cannon of their own on the bows of their ships to fire back. The typical counter to the line ahead formation was for the attacking fleet to do the same, form a long line of its own and gradually cleave toward the enemy fleet, exchanging broadsides as they gradually cruised into range, one alongside the other. Now, the problem uh, with this was that uh, such encounters were often indecisive. The enemy commander, who was getting the worst of it, could break off action easily, often disappearing into the night, into fog or a squall, and live to fight again another day. Sure, they might lose a ship or two, but a decisive defeat was avoided. This was the kind of fighting that Nelson expected from Villeneuve and Gravina, and in the days uh, after he took command, he devised a plan to bring about a battle of annihilation. In this regard, he was similar to von Molke in philosophy. It's not enough to successfully engage the enemy, get the better of it, but allow him a way to withdraw from the battle when things got rough. Instead, the enemy has to be flanked, 
encircled and utterly annihilated, never to fight again. Nelson, like von Molke, wanted a decisive, complete defeat of the French fleet. No escape, and so envelopment and annihilation was the goal. A fleet in line ahead could be very long, depending on how many ships were involved, of course. In this colossal engagement, the Franco-Spanish fleet in line ahead formation would stretch for about six miles at the start of the battle. Nelson meant to utterly destroy as much of the fleet as possible, and to do this, he would cut the line ahead formation into pieces and bring overwhelming strength of numbers and British gunnery to bear on the isolated parts of the fleet that would be cut. To do this, the British fleet would approach in two separate lines rather than the line ahead. Uh, the so-called weather column, the one clo you know closest to the wind, would be led by Victory and Nelson himself in the van uh, at the head of the column. The second, or Lee, column would be led by Collingwood in his flagship, Royal Sovereign. And the idea was to approach the combined fleet, fleet at top speed and cut through it uh, in parallel columns uh, in the middle, chopping it in half or in thirds. Uh, and although a piece of the fleet would keep on sailing, um, these two columns would immediately engage and attack the ships near them, and then more ships would arrive behind them, um, causing overwhelming strength at the points of attack um, and hopefully a victory. The weather off the coast of Cadiz had been gusty with heavy swells in the days leading up to the battle on October 21st. But then the proverbial calm set in before the storm, and that was not necessarily a good thing for sailing ships, because winds died down, the sea settled down, but ships moved even more slowly than they normally did. Villeneuve's combined fleet left the harbor at Cadiz on October the 20th, but due to the weather, moved very slowly east and south, southeast, making for Gibraltar and attempting to run the blockade. Of course, a British uh, frigate stationed outside the harbor saw this and signaled the fleet, or probably signaled another uh, frigate, which may have signaled another frigate until the flag signaling method got back to um, Nelson's fleet. On receiving word that the French-Spanish fleet was uh, leaving the harbor, Nelson began closing on the French from his position just over the horizon during the night. It would be the last time Nelson did this, and that would be the last night that he was alive, and the last one for thousands of other sailors and marines aboard each of these fleets. At around dawn, the British were within 21 miles of the French fleet and closing, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, Nelson ordered the signal, quote, prepare for battle. Now, you can imagine uh, what happens is these uh, f flags, some of them, you know, making up letters of the alphabet when there wasn't uh, a specific word, <clears throat> but many of the flags encompassed, you know, a single word. So, um, a lift meant that they uh, a bunch of flags went up 
uh, and these were read through a uh, telescope by the next um, ship uh, in line or whoever could see it. And it was repeated by them, you know, to the next ship so that ships that couldn't see the victory could see it. And in this manner, within, you know, a short time, um, the, the signals from the uh, flagship were conveyed across quite a distance. And um, this is the way uh, ships communicated with other. Needless to say, signals tended to be brief and terse, a few words conveying the thoughts uh, or the commands of the uh, admiral in involved. Now, wind direction and speed was a vital factor in naval battles in this age and would be in this one. The British uh, in this engagement, would have the wind almost at their back, which meant that they could move at, you know, the fastest speed that uh, that the wind and their ships would allow. Um, and with speed came maneuvering. In other words, the rudder, you know, turning left and right, would the ship would respond to that more quick, quickly if a ship was moving, you know, at a good clip. If the ship was barely making headway and almost dead in the water, you could turn the rudder and almost nothing would happen for a while. The ship would be extremely sluggish and not turn very fast. <clears throat> the former position is where the British were. Even though winds were light, they had what winds there were in this battle, at least at the start. The French were going to be in the opposite position, having uh, being on the... Um, the downside or the lee side of the wind and either sailing into it or nearly so. So they are moving extremely slowly and their ships don't turn very fast, um, not as fast as the British, and that's going to be a problem for them as the British bear down on them. At 8 o'clock in the morning, Villeneuve realized that he was about to engage a major fleet the size of his own. He knew also that Nelson was in command, and he saw them coming for him in two parallel lines. He therefore hoisted the signal to turn about and return to Cadiz, in other words, to try and run for it and get into the harbor. But, but given the wind, it took an hour and a half for all his ships to make the 180-degree turn, and all this was done in sight of the British fleet bearing down on them, with Nelson's personal standard flying from the victory. It was a futile maneuver anyway, as the combined fleet could barely make headway. And although the British approached at essentially a walking pace, the French moved even more slowly than that. Now the rear of the com combined fleet, uh, that is to say the, you know, the Franco-Spanish fleet, suddenly became the van under the command of Rear Admiral Dumanoir and was heading essentially north-northwest in a six-mile-long arc. And that is going to be one advantage and perhaps the only one that the Franco-Spanish fleet has because um, the British are going to approach uh, from their left or from the uh, port sides of their vessels with uh, the wind at their back. And what it means is for uh, quite a while, the lead ships, including Victory, would take a pounding from the guns of the Franco-Spanish warships 
that they were approaching on a perpendicular course, and they did. In other words, <clears throat> they're coming with their bows facing the Franco-Spanish fleet's broadsides, and that's one of the downsides of Nelson's plan. To counter this, of course, Nelson ordered his ships to hoist all available sails, full sail, to speed their approach as much as possible. Uh, and luckily, in, in the case of the Royal Sovereign, um, on which Collingwood was the second column, leading the second column, it had just had its hull cleaned, uh, and that meant that you know all these barnacles and things that would slow a ship down had been you know scraped off, and he could um, move faster than most of the other ships in the fleet, and he did. By 11 o'clock, the entire British fleet was now in Villeneuve's view. And he knew that at this rate, within an hour, they would be uh, within range. Uh, he also began to realize that there would be a, a battle that could not be avoided, and his fleet was not going to make it back to Cadiz Harbor in time. At 11.45, Nelson ordered the famous signal to his fleet. Quote, England expects every man will do his duty, unquote. And at noon, Villeneuve signaled, quote, engage the enemy, unquote, from the Boussentour. You know, I uh, remember a quote by the Duke of Wellington, uh, who once uh, said that a battle was like a ball, that is to say, the kind of a dancing ball of that age. And here's what he said, quote, some individuals may recollect all the little events of which the great result is the battle won or lost, but no individual can recollect the order in which or the exact moment at which they occurred, which makes all the difference as to their value or importance. End of quote. And this is even more so for a naval battle, where if, if you can imagine, it's almost like you're on an island. Every ship is engaged in an existential fight for its own survival while a huge battle rages on over miles between other ships each its own island as well books have been written recounting the battle of trafalgar from the point of view of one ship or another about the desperate fighting that took place over the next four or five hours that decided the fate of three empires Justice can't be done to it here, but I'll give you a glimpse of the overall impact and then uh, some details, mainly of the fighting in the thickest part of the battle, which is where these two columns, you know, come careening into the French fleet. Nelson's plan, of course, worked out well. The van of the French fleet uh, kept sailing uh, for a while, farther and farther away from the main action that was going to take place and did take place in the middle and rear of the combined fleet. So while the British, the entire British fleet became engaged uh, in due course as the you know, time went on and more and more arrived, only about two-thirds of the combined uh, Spanish and French fleet uh, actually were uh, engaged in the battle. So You'll remember we had 27 British ships of the line and 33 Franco-Spanish ships. So Nelson's maneuver immediately reduced the amount of 
the combined fleet from 33 to about 22. Actually, more than that, as we'll see. But um, in any event, what this meant is that, uh, as we say in soccer, the British had numbers up on the French and Spanish, at least for a while. Eventually, the van of the French fleet did turn back to help, but it took such a long time and it was at such a slow pace that when it got turned around and brought back uh, into range, it was basically too late. And the French admiral, seeing this, broke off contact and he and, a, uh, and about actually 15 other ships of the Franco-Spanish fleet um, escaped, leaving the rest of their um, comrades to their fate, which was very grim indeed. <clears throat> Once the van of each of the two British columns broke through, it became what Nelson uh, predicted, as he called it a, quote, pell-mell battle, in which the British brought ever-increasing numbers to bear on the increasingly disorganized and barely-moving French ships. So if you can imagine this line of French ships, of British ships, arriving, you know, it, the, at the point of collision between the two columns, the, the Franco-Spanish one and either one of the British columns, while there's initially, you know, one ship against one or two, uh, very quickly behind it, it becomes two to two, three to two, four to two, five to two, six to two, six to three. You know, uh, in the immediate area of the columns, the British have overwhelming force. And you may remember that rapid gunnery that um, the British were so good at. And the wind at their back, at least initially, so, the, so as they um, arrive, many of them maneuver themselves so that they cross the T, uh, either uh, across the bow or the stern of the French or Spanish targets, raking them with devastating broadsides. And they can do this because, of course, the, the French or Spanish see them coming and attempt to turn so that their broadside is facing at the critical moment, but they're moving so slowly nothing happens, while the British, while moving by our standards slowly, have the maneuvering room and are able to maneuver themselves into this position and deliver these these massive broadsides um, that can uh, totally devastate um, a ship. Uh, nonetheless, the early going was, as expected, a difficult time. Uh, Victory, for example, had to endure a good 45 minutes of salvos from at least three or four enemy vessels including none other than the Santissima Trinidad, uh, as it approaches. So if you do the math, at six to eight minutes per round. This meant that Victory received about seven or eight unanswered broadsides uh, from several ships, you know, at, at a distance at maximum range, but increasingly closer range uh, before she was able to reply. And the same for Royal Sovereign and the next ship in line in Collinwood's column and so forth. Uh, that next ship in Collingwood's line, Belle Isle, was hammered so hard, uh, by the time it arrived, it was completely dismasted with sails and uh, masts hanging down over its gun ports, so it was basically disabled from firing. Uh, but the, the French and the Spanish couldn't take advantage of it and board it or anything, uh, because 
uh, quickly behind it came more British ships to the rescue. Collingwood's royal sovereign entered the line astern of the Spanish Admiral Alava's flagship Santa Ana, one of those massive 112-gun, you know, super battleships. Uh, but he crossed uh, his stern and delivered a double-shotted broadside to devastating effect. Double-shotted meaning he put two cannonballs in each cannon uh, before firing it. And while this reduced the muzzle velocity, when you're in real close, um, that's um, the, the benefit of it is you're delivering a double you know, blast. Um, and it was a devastating one. Uh, to be sure. At 12.45, victory cut into the slow-moving French line between Villeneuve's uh, flagship, the Boussentour, and another French battleship, Redoutable. And Redoutable is going to have a place in history uh, uh, in this battle, but we'll get to that in a second. As they approached, Captain Hardy had mounted a 60-pound carronade. You remember those unusually big cannon that don't have much muzzle velocity but can blast either a huge ball or a massive amount of canister and grape shot. And in this case, <coughs> Captain Hardy uh, filled it full of canister. And as it passed the Boussentor, it erupted with grape shot into the stern windows of the French Admiral's flagship. Uh, as Victory cruised by, uh, broadsides followed and Boussentaire was hit so hard, um, she was seen to heal uh, under these blows. In other words, tipped to one side. Um, Villeneuve wrote later that he expected his flagship to be boarded at this point, right then and there. But it wasn't. Victory instead turned away to its port side, to the left, to engage the next ship ahead, Redoutable. Boussentaire, on the other hand, was engaged after Nelson's ship by another British warship, Neptune, uh, and uh, several blasts by Neptune completely dismasted Boussentaire by 1.45 p.m., followed by still more broadsides by two more ships. You see what I mean? They're, as they arrive, they, you know, they, they become uh, overwhelming. In this case, Conqueror and Leviathan also approached and blasted Boussentaire, leaving it a basically a floating hulk. <clears throat> in fact, at about 3.30 in the afternoon, with the ship basically unable to return fire and unable to maneuver um, and getting pounded, Villeneuve gave the order to strike his colors. And what that meant was you hauled down, in this case, the French flag from the stern of your ship. And these flags were huge, by the way, um, so that they could be seen from quite a distance, uh, so you would know either friend or foe. And when you strike your colors, you pull them down. And what that meant in naval warfare at the time was you're signaling that you're surrendering your ship. You're allowing a boarding party aboard the ship. You will not fire back. You're surrendering, essentially. And Villeneuve did that because he felt it was pointless not to do it. He attempted to had attempted to escape uh, before that by you know getting in a a boat and going, uh, transferring his colors to another ship, uh, but um, uh, Boussentor's um, boats had been, you know, blasted off uh, their um, 
davits, and uh, there was just no way to get off the ship, so he, um, he had to stay, and that grieved him greatly. Um, he was personally a brave man, and he, st- he stood and walked the quarterdeck throughout the entire uh, affair, and, you know, my God, his ship got really raked and blasted, but he was unharmed um, and managed to survive the, the battle. Meanwhile, astern of his vessel, Victory, um, as we've seen, turned and became engaged in a fateful exchange of broadsides with the Redoutable. Uh, The blasts were at close range uh, and so close that the masts of the two ships became entangled. Um, So Redoutable gave a good account of itself. It was able to turn enough and, you know, engage victory with some broadsides of its own. Now, uh, apparently at a very much slower uh, speed, as we've seen, victory probably got off a few more broadsides, but nonetheless, um, the, the, the masts become entangled, and so you can see what's happening on the deck of the other ship, and they can see you. Um, and the captain of the Redoutable uh, summoned his marines and, and sailors, uh, to board victory. Uh, at that point, Captain Hardy ordered his gunners up to the deck uh, to be able to repel this boarding party. And at that point, the two ships ceased firing because their gun crews you know, were now crowding the top deck, ready for hand-to-hand fighting. But two fateful things now happened. The first was that a marksman in the mass of Redoutable saw Nelson walking the quarterdeck below. Now, you may remember, um, at, at this, in this time, this was still the time when generals on their horses uh, often you know, led their men into battle in the first wave, and naturally there were casualties. Well, the same for um, captains and admirals in the British and French and Spanish fleets. They usually would expose themselves, and Nelson is one of those, on the decks as a means of encouraging their men if they saw that they were sharing their fate and sharing the, the risk. Nelson, in addition, uh, made sure to, so that his men knew who he was. Um, he wore his uniform with all the medals and glittering uh, showpieces uh, so that they could see he was with them. And, and uh, you know, it was a good thing. But from the mass on this uh, ship looking down, the French sharpshooter correctly guessed who he was and fired. The ball entered Nelson's left shoulder, shattered his spine, and lodged below his scapula. Uh, Nelson, when he was hit, uh, collapsed and exclaimed, quote, They've finally done it. I'm dead. Unquote. He was quickly surrounded by his men. Now, mind you, at this point, you know, the French are about to board and, and you know, the British are getting ready to receive it. But um, his fall, it, I guess it was thought, would demoralize his men. So a blanket was thro- quickly thrown over him and he was carried below uh, past the men just as another, you know, casualty so that they didn't see who it was. Now, the second event was the arrival of Temeraire, 
another British warship that was following victory. And Temeraris, uh, the captain of, Tem of Temeraris saw what was happening, filled his cannon with, cannon, with canister, grape shot, and as he came by Redoutable, because he could maneuver, he shot a blast across the crowded top deck of Redoutable. You know, you can imagine thousands and thousands of these musket balls just flying. And Redoutable's gunners have left their posts, so they're unable to reply. And what happens is... Um, Huge numbers of sailors and marines are either killed or maimed or wounded and made unable to fight by Temeraire's uh, blast. Uh, Temeraire is found, followed by other British warships, just as in Collingwood's column, and set upon and struck her colors at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. As British ships continued to arrive, the center and rear of the combined fleet began to collapse, as their ships were doubled and trebled, as they say, by swarming British warships. The Santissima Trinidad found itself set upon by several ships and surrendered at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and so it went one after another. In other words, you know, the, the, the Franco-Spanish fleet sailing in line basically sailed right into their own doom. They too began arriving, but now at the point of attack was overwhelming uh, British uh, numbers of ships who um, pounced on the, the, you know, whoever's next. Um, in all, after about five hours of fighting, the British captured or sank 22 enemy ships and lost none of their own. <laughs> below deck and anxious about the fighting, was eventually visited by Captain Hardy, uh, who was able to reassure him that they had won a great victory. Nelson was unquestionably conscious and aware of the magnitude of it when he died at about 4.30 in the afternoon. The ship's surgeon attending him, Dr. William Beatty, was present at his death, and his last words, supposedly, according to Beatty, were, quote, thank God I've done my duty, unquote, before he slipped into unconsciousness and shortly died of his wounds. In the days that follow, a storm blew up and sank many of the ships of the combined fleet that survived the battle. We talked about this. 3,000 sailors died after the battle in this storm. The fleeing van of the French fleet uh, was given chase and eventually captured on November the 4th as it tried to make its way to the French port of Rochefort. The Spanish admiral and seven other warships 
did manage to make it back to Cadiz and then attempted another sortie against Collingwood's forces, only to be beaten back. Villeneuve was taken prisoner and brought back to London with Nelson's body and actually attended Nelson's funeral and remained a prisoner for about six months when he was released by the British on parole. And what this meant was, in those days, uh, particularly high officers, if you were released on parole, you took an oath that you would no, not take arms against you know, the party holding you prisoner for the duration of the war. Um, and if you did that, <laughs> as an officer and usually as an aristocrat, at, that was acceptable, and they released you back to your own country. And amazingly, in the, that day and age, essentially, those oaths were followed, and they didn't, uh, they didn't rejoin the army uh, or navy until the next war. And that's what happened to Villeneuve. He returned to France, but within a week or so, as he was making his way to Paris and at a hotel, he was found dead of multiple stab wounds. Uh, his death was ruled a suicide by the local magistrate, um, something that got a lot of um, lambasting in the British press. Uh, but to this day, nobody knows who killed him if he was murdered. Uh, obviously, suspicion falls on the French uh, secret police. Uh, but um, again, uh, nobody knows to this day. The Spanish Admiral Gravina had been hit by grape shot on his ship and actually uh, lost his arm uh, during and after the battle. It was amputated. And despite the f this defeat, nonetheless, he was honored by the Spanish king for his valiant service during the battle. Nonetheless, he died of his wounds about six months later in March of 1806. Nelson was given a state funeral in London in January uh, 1806, uh, which lasted for several days. And I guess and I imagine it probably ranks as one of the greatest and most spectacular funerals ever given to any Englishman in the long history of that country. The final funeral service was held at St. Paul's Cathedral to a packed audience uh, where his body was laid to rest in a crypt uh, below the floor of the uh, cathedral, where it lies to this day. If you go to London, um, be sure to go to St. Paul's and see his magnificent uh, tomb, uh, which is still there, of course. Now, the legacy of Trafalgar. Well, let's start with Spain. The independence of much of Spain's South American Empire followed beginning in 1808. While the gravely weakened Spanish monarchy watched helplessly from Madrid, unable to intervene or oppose, Simón Bolívar and other colonial leaders defeated Spanish garrisons there one by one. Spain simply was blockaded and could not, you know, intervene. And as they fell, Spain's long position as a virtual superpower between 1492 and 1700, and one of the still great powers of Europe in 1800, basically ended in the waters 
off southwestern Spain itself. From the period of the Napoleonic War and the, after the collapse of its great overseas empire in South and Central America, Spain sank irre irretrievably into second-rate power status and later on perhaps even lower than that. For France, the result was, in the long term, the beginning of the end of a century of long struggle with Britain for supremacy on the world stage. Napoleon, of course, would range over the continent of Europe for another decade, but he would never be able to invade England and engage its army. The French fleet would never again seriously uh, attempt, even attempt to engage the British fleet anywhere. And then, of course, when Napoleon did meet uh, the British army at Waterloo in 1815 in modern-day Belgium, Britain delivered the final blow. Britain's ability to continue the war against Napoleonic France had always rested primarily on its navy, and after Trafalgar, France would never again seriously challenge Britain's command of the seas, as we have seen. And what this would mean, then, was that Britain would emerge for 150 years to follow as the greatest power in the world, able to project its military force anywhere and anytime, while simultaneously able to block any other European power from doing so. And what that meant, in turn, was the rise of the British worldwide empire and its ability to basically rule the seas. Um, and no European or other uh, power could or ever did attempt to challenge Britain's might uh, on the, on the uh, open waters uh, of this planet. So Britain and its empire rose after Trafalgar to become the richest, most powerful country in the world until after successive hammerings in the 20th century in the First and Second World War, its former colonies across the Atlantic, you know, sort of accepted the baton and the United States became the greatest sea power in the world. And when you think about it, you know, even to this day, uh, much of America's strength and power rests on its command of the oceans and its ability, again, to project immense power anywhere in the world, practically, using its naval forces, uh, which can act as sort of floating, in, in these days, uh, air bases um, and missile platforms and bases for marines and soldiers, uh, if need be, in any conflict anywhere in the world. That's what naval supremacy uh, really means. And after Trafalgar, the British had it. So, here we end another podcast. And I think you can see why we picked Trafalgar, because it truly did bend the arc of history. Thank you.